0: Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. I do hope you've enjoyed your lunch. When Simon Heffer accepted uh, our invitation to address the state of British politics across Australia, we made this invitation a few months ago, he little imagined that it would be in quite well such a state. As he put it in the Financial Review on Saturday, quote, three years after the biggest ever democratic vote in British history authorised the country's departure from the European Union after more than 33 million people went to the polls in a referendum, Britain has failed to leave. And it is threatening a realignment of the whole structure of British politics. I've said this before during our lunch to various people that all too often many Australians complain about the state of Australian politics. We think it's very polarising and bitter and partisan. But frankly, it is chalk and cheese when you compare Australia or Canberra versus Westminster. Simon has been a high profile political commentator and historian in Britain for more than three decades. Uh, he writes a regular column in the Daily and Sunday Telegraph, um, which the critics denounce as the Tory Graph. Uh, but Simon is a man for all seasons because he writes a regular column also in the more left-leaning New Statesman. Before that, he'd been a regular columnist at the Daily Mail and a commentator at the Spectator magazine, and that's how Simon and I got to know each other, because for Uh, About six years, uh, earlier this decade, I was the editor of the Australian edition of The Spectator. He's also a professor of history at the University of Buckingham, and he's written some many influential books, uh, most notably biographies of Thomas Carlyle and Enoch Powell. Um, He's also written uh, High Minds, The Victorians and the Birth of Modern, Modern Britain. That was in 2013. And The Age of Decadence, that's Britain. 1880 to 1914. That was published about two years ago. And his new book, which is being published this month by Random House, is Staring at God, Britain 1914 to 1919, which is obviously Britain during World War One and then the Versailles Peace Treaty. Now, thanks to the generous support of a few CIS members who have a real interest in British politics and history, uh, we've been able to bring out uh, uh, Simon here to talk about Brexit, Uh, Boris and the state of British politics. Uh, We're in Canberra on Thursday night and we're in Brisbane tomorrow night. And this is our, unfortunately, only Sydney event. And the questions we can raise after Simon's talk are, is the new PM, he's only been Prime Minister now for, what, six weeks? Is Boris Johnson now damaged goods? Are the Tories splintering irreparably? Is the Labor Party doomed under Jeremy Corbyn? Or... Could this die-hard socialist and critic of Western values really be the next occupant of number 10? Will Brexit even happen? It's bizarre that we're even raising the question more than three years since that fatic vote. And what does all this mean for the relationship between the UK and Australia? These are among the many questions we can put to Simon, but with that, please welcome the great man, my friend, Simon Heffer.
1: The furniture <laughs> oh. Tom, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, and thank you to the CIS for its hospitality and generosity, and that of its donors uh, for having me out here. I love coming to Australia. Uh, and in fact, the way things are going at home, I'm thinking of starting to look at the Sydney, <laughs> Sydney property market because <laughs> uh, I can think of a few better places to stay once I've lived down the humiliation of yesterday's test match result. Um, I am though wearing my MCC braces, for those of you who are aficionados, uh, but I'm sufficiently ashamed of them to have my coat on over them. Um, I was reminded uh, this morning, for some reason, of uh, going to America in 1987. I was a young journalist uh, on The Telegraph, and it was my first big foreign assignment, and I was sent to Washington in February 1987 to write about the Iran-Contra crisis, and um, in those days you didn't need a special journalist visa to get into America, uh, and so I just turned up with my ordinary visa, but I was asked at uh, Dallas Airport at Washington uh, the reasons for my visit, and uh, I said to the immigration officer there, well, I'm, uh, I'm out here to try and find out what's going on in your politics and in your country. And he said, hey bud, if you find out, would you let the rest of us know? <laughs> um, and this is rather how I feel about what's going on in England at the moment. Uh, I, uh, the, the, the great thing about speaking to you at 1 o'clock in the afternoon here is it's only 4 o'clock in the morning in London. And so, uh, as far as I'm aware, there, there's no political activity going on, although I wouldn't put it past some of them. Um, and therefore, what, what I brought myself up to date before uh, coming in here this morning, and I'm not sure that too much has changed. If it is, I can bear no responsibility for that. Um, I know Boris Johnson quite well, uh, Uh, He used to work for me. He worked for me 25 years ago on the Daily Telegraph. And I think it's fair to say I'm not an unqualified admirer. Uh, He has little attention to detail, and he has what can only be called a Baroque relationship with the truth. Um, But uh, that's in case his lawyers are watching this. Uh, And uh, I am conflicted because I am an ardent Brexiteer. Uh, I was only 14 years old in the 1975 referendum, but I canvassed for the no side uh, because it it was instinctive to me, even as a rather precocious teenager, that it was wrong for my country to be run by another country. I'm very keen to have uh, good relations with uh, our European neighbours and friends, but I do not wish to be told by a bunch of Germans, whom my ancestors spent quite a lot of the 20th century fighting, in two world wars, um, exactly how my country should be run. And uh, I I may not have grown up, but a view I had when I was 14 years old, I still have now, uh, 45 years later. So uh, I was an ardent Brexiteer and I watched with dismay in uh, the last three and a half years that we first of all took so long to begin the process of leaving by uh, 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 invoking Article 50 of the European Constitution. Uh, and then have made such a mess of our negotiations. Uh, It should have been clear to Theresa May when she was Prime Minister, and uh, until things change, and they could change quite quickly, she is the worst Prime Minister in my country's history since Lord North lost the American colonies. Um, (laughs) uh, But I say Boris Johnson likes a challenge, and that could be one for him. Um, She never seemed to appreciate that the, uh, the Europeans wanted to punish Britain partly for the very act of insolence that was engaged in trying to leave the European Union, but also because only by a punitive um, policy towards us would they prevent other countries in Europe from trying to do the same thing. And whatever you hear on this side of the world, there are a number of countries in Europe, some of them quite serious countries, where the European Union is not popular, where it's over-regulated, over and profoundly anti-democratic behaviour towards its so-called member states is resented. Um, One hears a lot about uh, a quite right-wing regime in Hungary being very unhappy about this, until the Italian coalition uh, was reformed the other day, and that won't last very long, take my word for it. Um, There was great uh, hostility in the Italian government to a European Union that was determined to make Italy sign up to a budget that would have been politically impossible for the Italians to do, and would have led um, Italy possibly into bankruptcy and uh, under a different government having to leave the euro. Uh, but there's also great resentment in France, uh, you know, which is one of the most significant countries in the European Union. The Franco-German alliance is at the heart of the European Union. And there is only very narrow consent, probably 51-49 in France, for their continued membership of the EU. And of course in Germany itself, the party Alternative for Deutschland Uh, which is uh, effectively a Brexit party, but uh, for Germans, um, is doing better and better in all local elections that are held. And so the future for the European Union is very rocky. That's why they didn't want to give us a decent trade deal to leave. And it's why they have rather ruthlessly weaponized our Irish neighbors uh, in the fight to stop us leaving by having this backstop, which means that Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom since 1922, uh, would remain under the customs union and single market rules. So we would not have complete control uh, commercially over one part of our country, which is utterly unacceptable, and Theresa May was very stupid in signing up to it. So that's what the argument is about, and that's why she, in the end, didn't get her deal through on three separate occasions. And it's why she was ultimately forced out of the leadership of, of the party. And there was this contest to uh, elect a new leader, which Boris Johnson won. Now, you will no doubt have experienced Boris um, on, the, uh, on the media or in the, on the Internet. And uh, you will have seen that he is a very jovial and charismatic person. Uh, unfortunately, being prime minister of a country in crisis requires a little bit more than just geniality and the ability to tell a few jokes. And he was sheltered from this for the first five weeks of his prime ministership because parliament wasn't sitting. But when it came back last Tuesday and he was put into the front line of politics, the veneer very, very quickly came off. He was asked repeatedly, for example, in parliament last week, uh, when he said that there were negotiations proceeding with the EU, what progress had been made. And he couldn't answer. He just told a few jokes and moved on. Um, He then lost a vote uh, to uh, keep control of parliamentary business for Wednesday. And when his opponents got control of parliamentary business on Wednesday, thanks not least to the outrageous partisanship of the Speaker, who should probably be impeached uh, for doing it, um, they voted to force Johnson to go to Brussels and demand an extension. Now, the good news uh, in the British press this morning is that having been told for days that uh, those who uh, had been the architects of this new measure and who had forced him, or would force him, to go to Brussels to ask for an extension in the time that we leave, um, uh, they'd said over the weekend that we've had absolute assurances from the EU that they will not veto an application to uh, extend our membership to the 31st of January. In fact, uh, Monsieur Drion, who is the Foreign Minister of France, speaking with the authority of President Macron, said yesterday that unless the British have got a definite idea of what they're going to do and what they're going to ask for before um, the the European summit meeting on the 17th of October, we are not going to grant an extension. So I hope that gives Boris Johnson an easy route uh, simply to soft-pedal until then uh, to show the European Union he hasn't got any plans whatsoever to make them any sort of offer, and then he can get out. Where I would criticise him is uh, on on several counts. First of all, because he has no attention to detail, and he, I think, would be the first to admit that, um, he has uh, handed over almost all executive power to his leading advisor, a man called Dominic Cummings, who ran uh, the Vote Leave campaign, which was one of the two main campaigns to get us out of the European Union three and a half years ago, and who is not a member of the Conservative Party and who has utter contempt, it seems, for everyone who's in it. Um, Although he was uh, uh, one of the main advocates of leaving the European Union, uh, he has a particular dislike for those on the most hard-line edge of uh, Brexit politics, namely Nigel Farage, uh, who I know has been out in Australia here recently, and you may have heard what he had to say, Um, and the European uh, reform group of um, MPs in the the Conservative Party, which was Jacob Rees-Mogg's group until Jacob Rees-Mogg, took Boris's shilling and went to serve in the Cabinet. Uh, And Cummings is deeply opposed to these people. He wants the ERG basically driven out of Parliament. And he has said that he will not do any sort, or will not recommend to to Johnson to do, any sort of of electoral deal with the Brexit Party, who will probably stand in 500 seats at an election and will hoover up Conservative votes thereby, and some Labour votes as well, by the way, and will therefore likely to prevent the Conservative Party winning the majority in the election, whether it's held before or after the 31st of October. Also, the Brexit Party, um, they loathe Cummings for the same reason that Cummings loathes them. They are polar opposites. And they will not do a deal with the Conservative Party while Cummings is an advisor. Now, Boris can solve this problem quite easily tomorrow by sacking Cummings, and I'm not the only British commentator who's urging him to do this, but I think he's afraid to do so because he doesn't seem to have a plan himself. Cummings appears to have a plan, and he wants Cummings to continue to execute it. All I can say is, the Cummings plan so far, uh, which included the expulsion of 21 Conservative MPs last week, uh, a Cabinet Minister residing this weekend, and we're told there's more to come, looks as though it is going to bring down, uh, in some measure or other, the Johnson government. Now, of course, um, Boris tried last week to get a general election uh, to be held on the 15th of October, and the Labour Party and others voted against it. We have this ludicrous thing called the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, which was brought in by David Cameron and Nick Clegg during the coalition of 2010, uh, which was to prevent the Tory party ditching the Liberals the minute they thought they could win an election, uh, and calling one in short order, and uh, and getting power on their own. Uh, But the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act means that it takes 434 two-thirds of the 650 MPs in the House of Commons, to vote for um, a dissolution of Parliament. That's been removed from the Queen's prerogative, which it wasn't until 2011, uh, in order for there to be an election. And so uh, that election wasn't called last week. Apparently Johnson's going to try again tomorrow to call an election. They will refuse, and they will keep refusing uh, until he is twisted in the wind sufficiently, from their point of view, to make himself almost unelectable, possibly to force him out of the of, of the leadership of the Conservative Party. And so we go from one spasm of turmoil to another. He could solve this, I think, by call, calling a vote of confidence uh, in his own government, but there's nothing to stop him doing that. And if he loses it, which he probably would, because he's dismissed his parliamentary majority by sacking 21 MPs last week, um, then uh, he can say, right, over to you, Corbyn, you see what you can do. Now, under the rules... Corbyn has 14 days uh, in which to try and form a government. If he can't, he has to go and tell the Queen that he can't form a government, and then we have a general election anyway. The trouble is, if we leave it much longer, it's going to be after Brexit uh, rather than before, and uh, that's something that uh, the, the, the opposition in Britain don't want unless they have secured a promise from Johnson that he will not pursue no deal. Now, this whole thing about the pursuit of no deal is, is very difficult, there was, uh, it is a default position. If we can't get a deal, we leave without one on the 31st of October. And there was a marvelous phrase in Le Monde, uh, the French newspaper, about um, four or five months ago that said it was all very well for the House of Commons to keep voting against a no deal, but they likened it to the passengers on the Titanic voting against the iceberg. Um, <laughs> and it was an absolutely brilliant metaphor. Um, uh, that's one thing our French cousins do rather well, uh, as those of you who have read Proust will know um and uh nonetheless they keep voting against the iceberg and they they did so last week uh johnson has said that he will die in a ditch rather than go and ask for uh, a continuation he doesn't help himself by using this rhetoric um there's no room for persuasion nuance or subtlety in this which i'm afraid i think is a, a bit of a problem in a politician and um So we've had great legal minds in Britain in the press over the weekend that I read, thanks to the wonders of the Internet, uh, saying that uh, if he chooses to take this to the Supreme Court, which we're told he's going to do, and the Supreme Court says he must obey the law and he must go and ask Brussels for uh, an extension uh, if they can't do a deal, then uh, if he ignores them, he'll be in contempt of court. And in our country, I think possibly the same is true here. As we have a very similar legal system, uh, he will have to go to prison. Uh, and so many of us were, are surprised it's taken this long for Boris to get to prison. But um, <laughs> uh, it, is, it is rather, um, it is rather uh, foolish, I think, for a British Prime Minister to say that he will ignore the law. And indeed, his Lord Chancellor, Robert Buckland, said uh, to the media yesterday that he, as Lord Chancellor, had had to take an oath when he took his office up to uh, stand by the rule of law and that he had he said a conversation with Boris Johnson about the importance of doing that. And I just hope that he included Mr Cummings in that conversation because uh, Cummings, I think, would be very happy for Johnson to go to prison. And certainly one of Johnson's, uh, not because they don't like each other, but because he thinks it would make the point that he wants to make about uh, uh, the importance of martyrdom. Uh, in, in, in this issue, and in fact I can smell the burning flesh from 11,000 miles away already. Um, but even Boris's, uh, one of Boris's predecessors, as leader of the Tory party, Ian Duncan Smith, uh, was in the press on Saturday morning in England saying that uh, Johnston should make a martyr of himself and show uh, uh, how resolute he was by going to jail. Um, I don't know whether Boris has thanked Ian Duncan Smith for that, but uh, <laughs> it wouldn't have seemed to me to be a helpful comment if I'd been in his shoes. Um, Of course, Johnson may be saved by President Macron because it only takes one of our 27 partners to say, we're not having it. Uh, We're not going to give you an extension. And then there's no extension. Um, And then probably we get an election after the 1st of October. At this stage, if the Brexit Party stand in that election, they will prevent the Conservative Party from winning a majority. There was an opinion poll yesterday in Britain that showed the Tories with 35% of the vote and Labour with 21%, but with the Brexit Party having 12%. And because of the way that our first-past-the-post system works and because of the way our electoral boundaries are drawn up, we haven't had a boundaries review in Britain for, I think, 15 years now because of obstruction by the Labour Party who don't want uh, uh, constituencies redrawn because it would be to their disadvantage. The Conservative Party could get 35% of the vote and still not have a majority. The great beneficiaries, I'm absolutely sure, of a forthcoming election in Britain will be the Liberal Democrats. They only won 12 seats at the last election, but they've got 17 MPs now. They've had two by-elections and three MPs, one Tory and two Labour, have defected to them in the last week. Uh, The Labour Party, I should stress, is as divided as the Conservative Party over Europe. It's only not as exposed because it's not in government and therefore nobody cares about it but um, there are problems there too. So um, if an election comes, I think the Lib Dems will win dozens of seats, mainly at the Tories' expense, uh, but also at the expense of the Labour Party. Um, in Scotland, uh, Boris Johnson has fallen out with the charismatic Ruth Davidson, uh, who was the leader of the Scottish Labour Party. Uh, sorry, the Scottish Conservative Party. Freudian slip there. Um, uh, and uh, she was a, a Remainer and... Uh, uh, very much a one-nation Tory, i.e. a sort of Heathite, um, uh, uh, high public spending sort of person. Uh, but she doesn't like Boris Johnson and has fallen out with him, and she resigned about 10 days ago from the leadership of um, that, uh, that party and said she wanted to spend more time with her family. Um, it was largely down to Ruth Davidson, and she does deserve real credit for this, that the Tories won 13 seats in Scotland of Scotland's 59 seats, at the last election, there was the highest proportion of seats they'd won since 1979. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if every one of them was lost following her departure because the Tory party is now very unpopular in Scotland, which voted to remain. Um, They've got uh, a hectoring uh, first minister in Nicola Sturgeon, who without any conception of whether the country would be in the European Union or out of it, or even what currency an independent Scotland would have, uh, is determined to try and lead Scotland to independence. Uh, But it's quite possible with Labour also being loathed in Scotland that um, 56 or so of the 59 seats in Scotland could be won by the SNP. Um, However, they probably, even with that, the Labour Party probably wouldn't have enough seats to have a coalition with the SNP. The Liberal Democrats hate Jeremy Corbyn. Much of Jeremy Corbyn's own party in Parliament hates Jeremy Corbyn and don't want him to be uh, Prime Minister. I mean, he is uh, a Bolshevik. He has made some... Uh, regrettably unconvincing statements about fighting anti-Semitism in his own party. The Labour Party uh, now has people in it uh, who seem to be quite happy about uh, the sort of Jew-baiting that went on in Germany in the 1930s. It's really quite revolting to watch it. And um, Corbyn has done very little to, to uh, silence these people, and in fact he uh, is routinely shown uh, on political platforms with people who have expressed the most uh, appalling sentiments about Jewish people. Uh, and um, so that won't do him any favours come to an election. It doesn't endear many of his parliamentary colleagues to him. And I think they will move heaven and earth after an election to stop him having any hand in uh, the governance of Britain. Uh, But we could be in a position where the only two parties who, by joining together, could form a coalition would be the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, and that isn't going to happen. Uh, And uh, believe me... um, And so if that is the case, then Britain could be heading for a second general election within another four or five months, or possibly even sooner than that. We are in a real mess at home. Um, We are a very polarised and divided country. Uh, As a historian, the only time I can think of something similar happening was after the Tory party split after the uh, the repeal of the Corn Laws in 1846. And uh, the Tory party didn't hold power again uh, for any length of time. Uh, until 1868, sorry, 1865. So it is uh, It is very difficult to see a, a bright future here. There will be a realignment. Uh, there could be great unease in Britain for maybe even five or ten years after this, and it will settle down. We are a very resilient country. You know, we are a great country. Like the Australians, as I said to somebody yesterday, we are a very bloody minded country. Uh, and I mean that as a compliment, not in any way else. And we will come through this, but we are really damaged at home by a a group of people in the Conservative Party and in Parliament who heard the result of the 2016 referendum, regarded it as an act of insolence by the British people and were determined to to ignore it. And when they talk about, oh, we don't want to leave without having a deal, what they really mean is we don't want to leave at all. And... uh, they need to be squashed. I'm just not convinced that the way that they're being squashed at the moment is going to be good for Boris Johnson, good for the Conservative Party, or good for my country. Uh, but we shall see. Anyway, that is what I think is going on at 4 o'clock in the morning uh, in, <laughs> in, uh, in Britain. But uh, there may be updates later. Thank you very much. <clears throat> you. Um, we've got time for...
0: Um... That's ten minutes of a conversation before, before we open it up to, the, uh, to you in the audience. Uh, it reminds me, um, at the height of the Iraq-Iran war in the 1980s, um, Henry Kissinger was asked, what should the US position be? And he replied, uh, it's a pity that both sides can't lose. Uh, is that how a lot of Brits feel about the two major parties in Britain today?
1: Yes, I think it is to an extent. There's real dissatisfaction with our political class in Britain. And I think it dates back to the, the, the change in the composition of yeah, or, or the, the the makeup of the average political candidate. Uh, you know, until about 30 or 40 years ago, people who sat on the Labour benches had started off uh, either as coal miners and had done a seriously nasty uh, manual job for the first 20 or 30 years of their life. They had then gone into the trade union movement and become MPs. Um, other Labour MPs had been Oxford Dons uh, uh, or had... Um, had had some sort of, they'd been barristers, they'd had some sort of profession, and then went into politics. On the conservative side, they'd mostly been business people mm. or army officers. You know, they'd, they'd had serious jobs. Now, on all sides of the House of Commons, most of our members of Parliament, uh, they have left university, they've gone straight to work for a political party, they've become special advisors, and they then got a seat in Parliament. They've never had any experience of the real world, and therefore they've never met the people who, when they're MPs, pay their salaries, the taxpayers. They never understood that business needs to make a profit um, in order to, for taxes to be paid for all the public services that they brag about, mm. uh, that they're such great custodians of, to be able to function. Um, and this causes great resentment among the public because they feel they're governed by imbeciles. And uh, I'm afraid, in, in, in a great measure, they are right. There are honourable people left in the House of Commons. Uh, sadly, and I say, I'm a, I'm a fervent Brexiteer, some of the most honourable people I knew in the House of Commons were thrown out of the Tory party last week. Mm. So mm. I don't agree Cl- with politics, but they were proper. They were people who had a proper ethic of public And standards. just to
0: clarify, too, including Winston Churchill's grandson yeah. and two former chancellors of the Exchequer, correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, Nicholas Soames is a very old friend of mine. Mm. and he, Churchill's grandson. Yeah, yep. and he is a man of the highest integrity and of, of great honour who has served his country immaculately uh, over the last um, 35 years as an MP. Mm. And it's a great source of regret to me that the Conservative Party did what it did to okay, me.
0: We'll get to Dominic Cummings in a moment, but just sticking with the Tory-Labour divide, couldn't you argue, though, uh, that the splintering in both major parties has been happening for a while? I think of the Labour Party, the Blairite wing that sort of accommodated the Thatcher capitalist uh, free market views with the old mm. Labour socialist uh, tradition. But also on the Tory side, you've had the Thatcherite tradition clashing bitterly with the Ted Heath one Nation Toryism. So, hasn't this splintering been uh, uh, had tap roots going back uh, a few decades?
1: The Labour Party, uh, sorry, the Conservative Party has been a coalition effectively since uh, the 1920s when the Liberal Party um, started to dissolve. Mm. And uh, a lot of national liberals after the Ramsay MacDonald National Government in the 1930s um, just became conservatives. And people who thought like them became conservatives. Ironically, it's that liberal tradition that gave birth to that free market idea that Mrs. Thatcher took. Because, Gladstone tradition. Yes, because um, the old Conservative Party was paternalistic. It believed in tariffs. Mm. Uh, it believed in imperial preference. You mm. think back to Joe Chamberlain when he became a Conservative. So that was driven up. The, the Tory Party's been a coalition for 80 or 90 years. The Labour Party first showed signs of fissure, if you like, in a very, after a very famous speech at Hugh Gates School, who was one of the great lost leaders of our politics made in 1962, uh, about our then attempt to join the common market, where he said we were throwing away a thousand years of history. Mm. And this was wildly applauded by people in the uh, Labour Party, except for a few like Roy Jenkins and other pro-Europeans. And Gates School's wife turned to Roy Jenkins and said, Roy, why are all the wrong people clapping? now?" Actually, the wrong people were the people who became the hard left in the Labour Party long after Gates School's death, people like Tony Benn. And in the early 1980s, The Labour Party um, had a fight between really hardline left wingers, of whom Jeremy Corbyn, then as an activist, was one, Mm -hmm. and people who had a more centrist view. Now, once Blair became Prime Minister in, sorry, became leader of the party in nineteen ninety four, that changed because Blair successfully argued to his party, Mrs. Thatcher has broken the consensus. She has shown that capitalism is here to stay. We have to stop all this nonsense about. Know, the, the rights of workers read in tooth and claw, and we have to be a more modern party that understands the aspirations of most people in this country. And um, that, uh, because Blair is now blamed for uh, the Iraq war, which is ridiculous, I mean, it was, it was obviously President Bush that uh, pressed the button on the Iraq war in 2003, but because Blair's memory is vilified for his role in the Iraq war, mm. um, everything that he stood for is vilified, and this is what gave such leverage to Jeremy Corbyn, uh, helped by a mass grassroots recruitment drive, because the leader of the Labour Party is chosen by the uh, the membership of the party. They sold memberships for £3 mm, a head, mm, which mm. is nothing at all. What's that? five Australian dollars a head. And um, 500,000 people joined the Labour Party and almost all of them voted for Corbyn.
0: Okay, so uh, let's talk about uh, Boris Johnson. You've obviously been very critical here today, but I just want to... Um, rebroadcast uh, the comments you made to the Sydney Morning Herald a few months ago, you said that uh, the word often used about Boris Johnson uncontroversially is that he is a liar. He reminds one of the joke about Richard Nixon, that he lied so much that if he found himself accidentally telling the truth, he would start lying again to keep his hand in. Um, <laughs> is your hostility to Boris Johnson, does that outweigh your support for Brexit?
1: No. Only just. No, No, I mean, look, Brexit's about my country and it's about my... I have children. It's about my children's future. I don't want my children to grow up in a colony of Mm. Brussels. I want my children to grow up in a real country. I regret that Boris is in charge of my country because it's largely his rhetoric. He opens his mouth without thinking. In his campaign, he said there was a million to one chance of us leaving without a deal. Last week, he said, well, it was touch and go. There's a bit of a difference between touch and go and a million to one chance. (laughs) And it's that sort of... Um, looseness with uh, his rhetoric that many people interpret as dishonesty. And it's why last week so many people in his uh, in his own party said, well, we can't trust him, we don't believe the insurances he's giving us about this progress with talks, and therefore we're going to vote against it." It's a real problem having a reputation for not being straight. Yes, but I mean, uh, he won the Tory leadership comfortably.
0: I think it was like a two-to-one margin over Jeremy Hunt.
1: Well, yes, he won it comfortably in the country. It was a two-to-one margin. But uh, it was 160 to 147, I think, in the parliamentary okay. party. So um, there, it was a very narrow victory among the people who have to work with him on a day by day okay, basis. Okay, but in a
0: general election, it all comes down to appealing to your grassroots because in Britain, unlike Australia, of course, you have first-past-the-post system, yeah. so it's about turnout. And this is Jonathan Friedland in The Guardian yesterday. Whoever can unite their political tribe, be it Brexiter or remain, is likely to win out. So can't Boris, isn't he well-placed among all the Tories to win over a lot of those Brexiteers
1: who fell out with the Tories under Theresa May? Only if he gets rid of Dominic Cummings and he is allowed to pursue some sort of pact with the Brexit party. Because what a pact Mm. means is that Conservative candidates who have been nursing what they think are safe seats for the last couple of years will be asked to stand down in favour of Brexit candidates who it's believed have a better chance of winning than they do. Right. And that isn't going to happen. I I just don't see it happening.
0: Okay, so this is The Observer overnight. Uh, Boris Johnson will be forced from power if he defies no deal law. You mentioned that. Uh, This is the headline of Andrew Rawnsley's uh, column. He writes a popular column in The Observer. Uh, Like Macbeth, Johnson is too stepped in blood to turn back. Where next? Your argument then is that he needs to dig himself out by getting rid of this Dominic Cummings and uh, other divisive advisers and welcome back into the
1: fold those Remainers that Johnson kicked out. That's your line, right? I mean, what I would have done if I were Johnson is I would have gone to Europe, not just for cursory meetings, which he had with Merkel and Macron at the end of August, but I'd have gone to Brussels, I'd have asked to meet members of the bureaucracy, and I'd have had very high-profile, lengthy talks with them, where I would have said, look, this is, the, this is the plan that we've got to avoid the Irish backstop. The other problem that Boris has got, though, is even if he'd done that, The Brexit parties say that there are elements of the deal, even without the backstop, that they find objectionable. Mm. About, For example, the European Court of Justice still having uh, powers over people in Britain. And so that's why they want no deal, because the backstop has just been the the dominant feature of what was wrong with Theresa May's deal. There was a hell of a lot of other things wrong with Theresa May's deal. Um, And I think Cummings actually does realise that. Uh, But instead of trying to persuade... Mm. He said to Johnson, well, just use the bludgeon, just throw people out who don't agree. Yeah, use
0: the bludgeon. We had dinner the other night with the former Prime Minister, John Howard, and he was just aghast at this Cummings and his tactics. And he saw it a bit like Steve Bannon in the United States yeah. in the sense that they use this bludgeon. you can't really do that in parliamentary democracies. Um, why has Boris Johnson placed so much emphasis and faith in this guy who's never even voted or, or a member of the Conservative Party?
1: When Boris was mayor of London, he had eight deputy mayors. Eight deputy mayors? Eight. And uh, I remember writing in the New Statesman before he... uh, By the way, I'm not not a leftist for the avoidance (laughs) of that. But the New Statesman is a very good magazine in London and it's a very broad church and its editor very kindly invites me um, uh, once or twice a month to write about Conservative Party affairs, uh, uh, which I'm delighted to do. And I wrote before uh, the election took place for, for the leadership that whilst he had had eight deputy mayors, it was going to be very hard for him to have eight deputy prime ministers. look a bit visible. <laughs> uh, and I was assured by people who were supporting Johnson's campaign in uh, June and July that um, while he wouldn't have eight deputy mayors, there'd be some very good or deputy prime ministers, there'd be some very good advisors in Downing Street who would compensate for his complete lack of attention to detail and his idleness. Um, and that turned out to be Dominic Cummings. Uh, who uh, has a reputation among Tory MPs of being uh, virtually bestial. They absolutely hate him because he hates them. And uh, one Tory MP sent me an email yesterday, actually, uh, uh, in despair. He'd voted for Johnson. And he said, I thought everything was going well until he appointed Cummings, at which point my heart sank. And he said, now I see what's happened. All our hearts are sinking. I mean, this is a real problem. Johnson needs more friends at the moment, not fewer friends. You'll only get those 21 people back if he says to them, look, realistically, if I go to Brussels now and ask for a deal, they won't give me a deal that's going to satisfy the majority in the party. And I plead with you not to make my life difficult.
2: Okay.
0: But given all of this, though, Simon, uh, the divisions in the Tory party, uh, the the, the conduct of Cummings, uh, Boris's own weaknesses, which you've highlighted, uh, why then are you so confident that a, a Prime Minister, Jeremy Corbyn, is still remains unlikely.
1: Well, I don't think that that 21% figure in the opinion poll yesterday was wildly inaccurate. And let's just say that Corbyn miraculously won 275 seats. And he'd need at least that in order to have any sort of coalition with the SNP. And that assumes that the Scottish Nationalist Party wants to do a coalition with him. That's another matter altogether. But they are the only people who are ideologically anywhere near him they're Bolshevists, basically, in the way that mm. he is. Mm. They're the only people who are anywhere near him who might do uh, a coalition deal with him. Um, its Even if he won those 275 seats, there would be a sufficient number of, shall we say, Blairite MPs in the Labour Party who would say, we've got to stop him. And they would just cross the floor and join the Liberal Democrats. Mm. Uh, there are They haven't been mobilising their hatred against him because they didn't think that there's a chance or they didn't think until recently there was a chance of an election, but uh, in an election, many of them either won't stand uh, or they might try and stand for another party or stand as independents. Um, some who will stand and get elected will do so on the basis that if there is uh, a chance of Corbyn having power, they will clear off. Corbyn has put in or his people have put into some constituencies, some winnable constituencies. Uh, MPs who or candidates who are so extreme, yeah, that the that any sensible opposition in those constituencies, whether it's the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party, will make mincemeat of. Them.
0: Yeah, what's the percentage of Labour Party voters who supported Brexit in 2016? It was
1: about 38 percent, I think.
0: Right. Whereas most Labour politicians
1: are Remainers, correct? Yes. Fascinating. Yes. Yeah. There's only a handful. There's there's any. I suppose, eight or nine Labour MPs. And there's no
0: chance that those Labour Brexit voters will vote Tory. They'd, uh, they'd rather vote for the Brexit party before Conservative.
1: Yes, Nigel Farage's great achievement in the referendum, this is why I think he won the referendum, which is something that Dominic Cummings always takes credit for, was that Farage persuaded working-class people who had always voted Labour to vote to come out. Mm. And uh, these people regard the Conservative party as a class enemy. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. don't regard um the Brexit Party, as a class, I mean, the Brexit Party has just as many former Labour voters in it, right, uh, right, as it does Conservatives. So that's yeah. that's why they're so dangerous to both. The main okay, we'll open up to
0: questions very soon. But I was just going to say on the Liberal Democrats, the magic of politics, two thousand and seventeen, and you were very good friends with the former leader Charles Kennedy. Uh, but in two thousand and seventeen, the Liberal Democrats' uh, their vote was probably what five to ten percent, if that. Yeah, and now you're saying their vote. Three years, two years later is up to nearly 30%, 35%, 30%? No, is it?
1: no, the opinion policy has had them at 19%. 19 so they've gone up... Uh, yeah, they're 2% two, below the Labour Party. But still a huge turnaround from two years ago. It's a huge turnaround. They've got a new leader called Jo Swinson, who's a very uh, nice and inoffensive... Uh, she's in her mid-30s? She's in her mid-30s, and she's very personable. Oh. Um, I mean, her politics are bonkers, but she, <laughs> she, comes, she comes over quite well uh, on television, which is what matters these days. Uh, they've, as I they had some quite prominent Labour defectors, uh, notably Chuka Umuna, who was always spoken of as a possible former Labour leader. He's now in the Liberal Democrats, and um, they will can. They are the only party that is undivided on Europe. Uh, the Tories, apart from the Brexit Party, of course, but the Tories and the Labour Party are both split on Europe. But the Lib Dems are 100% behind uh, having a second referendum and trying to undo Brexit, uh, and. There's, I suppose, a minority of people in Britain, maybe 10 or 15% of those, who feel the same way. But if you're a Conservative who voted Remain last time and you see Boris Johnson's highly mm. polarised party mm. that's just thrown out 21 MPs yeah. like you, you're going to vote for Liberal Democrats.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's a bit like Trump in a sense. It is, yeah. 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 OK, questions? Yes, sir. Just wait for the microphone. And now's as good a time as any as to say I'd like to acknowledge some of our board members. I see Peter Mason, our former chairman here. Good to see you, Peter. Uh, I think Philippa Stone's next to you. Great, Philippa, thanks. And Ross Grant, thanks so much for coming. Yeah.
3: I just want to comment on the the um, um, fixation, I think, that the media have on the personalities. You know, we've been talking about Boris, we've been talking about Cummings, and, and I put to you that in your speech, you mentioned these uh, Remainer Tories who believed the public were insolent by voting for Brexit. And now, at the end, you're feeling great sympathy for these champion Tories who've been thrown out of the party. Mm. And I put to you that what what we've got today, which has not happened before in my lifetime, is we've got a Labour Party that's been flushed out as Remain. We've got an SNP that's been flushed out as Remain. We've got the Lib Dems, of course, who are Remain. And now we've got 21 expelled Tories who are Remain which means when the next election actually comes round, the battle lines are going to be clear. If you want to leave the EU, you vote Conservative or you vote Brexit. Um, if you want to stay in, you vote for the others. And it sounds to me, whether or not it's a Boris masterclass or whether it, it's just luck, um, I think his prospects are really good and I'd like you to comment. Yeah,
0: that, that question is one you'll hear often from the Tory okay. shires. Simon.
1: Okay. Um, I think his prospects are good if he does a deal with the Brexit Party. Under our system, if he doesn't do a deal with the Brexit Party, he's toast, because they will stop him from winning anything up to four or five dozen seats. Uh, they won't necessarily win any themselves, but they'll do that. Uh, you expose the apparent contradiction between me feeling sympathy for these <coughs> Remainers and talking about the uh, the, ins- the way that they treat the so-called insolent uh, uh, voters who voted to uh, to leave. Um, I, I, I have a strong uh, desire for the Conservative Party to win elections and to be a powerful force. Uh, I understand, however, at the moment that it can't do that if it becomes a sectarian party. Mm. And uh, while I don't agree with the 21 people who were thrown out, uh, many of them were perfectly honourable public servants. I think they made a mistake on this crucial issue. But I don't... Johnson didn't make this a vote of confidence. He, he said last week... I'm treating it as though it were a vote of confidence, which I'm afraid is not the same thing. And if he had had it as a vote of confidence, um, which he was afraid to do because it might have given Corbyn a chance to form a government, uh, then uh, that would have been a different matter. But he didn't. They, they, he can call it whatever he likes, but it wasn't a vote of confidence. And I think it was wrong for him to make the party look so sectarian by throwing up people who disagreed with him. And this, I don't think he wanted to do. This was a Cummings thing. Yeah. Next question.
3: Uh, I thought your talk was very interesting. Thank you very much. But I'd like you. to ask you a very simple question. Will Brexit occur on the due date? If so, with Thanks. or without a deal? If not, what? <laughs> OK. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I, w-
1: I remember when I was a little boy asking my father uh, about bookmaking and about odds. We were watching a race meeting on television. <laughs> and uh, he told me all about it. And I said, you have put money on horses. And he said... No, uh, he said. And you, the reason why is you need to ask yourselves why bookmakers remain in business year after year, and it's because they always win. So I'm not a betting man. Um, <laughs> it's a very valuable lesson. Um, but uh, I think the chances are that because of European uh, a European veto and our refusal to amend uh, what we want or, or to uh, amend the way that we or what, what our demands are that we will leave on the 31st of October without a deal. I hope I'm right. Uh, If we do leave on the 31st of October, it will be without a deal. If Boris Johnson accepts the Theresa May deal uh, in order to avoid having to go to ask um, for an extension, his credibility will be torpedoed. That'll be the end of him. Mm. Um, His own party will turn on him because they hate the Theresa May deal so much. Um, And that will mean if there's an election after the 31st of October, even though we have left, uh, the Brexit party would still stand in large numbers and would prevent him from winning. Um, The only way I can see that we don't leave on the 31st is if he challenges Corbyn to a vote of confidence. Um, An election is called before the 31st and he loses it and there is some sort of rainbow coalition. Uh, that takes over. I'm thinking of those rainbows actually you see in rather dirty puddles you walk down the street <laughs> after it rains, um, uh, and they will then quite willingly go to Brussels and beg for a deal. And because Brussels will be dealing with people of a different kidney, if you like, they might well grant it. But that's ne- the only way I can see it happening. Right.
0: Next question.
2: Thank you. I've got um, two parts to my question. It really relates to Philip Hammond. Um, Philip Hammond, was, the
0: former Chancellor of the Exchequer. Yes. Yep. Yeah.
2: Uh, what would you have done with him and, and the, the other 20 that were rejected? And also there has been talk that he was working behind the scenes, going to Brussels, uh, actually working against his own country. Do you believe those sort of stories? <laughs>
1: um, I don't know whether to believe them or not. I think if he had been going to Brussels, literally, to, to do it, uh, we would have known about it. There would have been photographic evidence of him getting on and off planes and trains and things. Um I'm sure that he was in communication with people in Brussels, which is a different matter. I think that uh, all of these people who were thrown out last week have had, had had conversations with Brussels about the support they could expect uh, if there was a problem. Um, what would I have done with him? Uh, I would have treated him in the way that Mrs. Thatcher treated Ted Heath. I would have ignored him. Uh, I'd have said, well, you know, he's obviously a disaffected uh, former minister who didn't get his own way and uh, I'd have ignored him. I would not have expelled
2: him from the party for the reasons I've said. John. Yeah. um, Can I come at things from a slightly different angle? Uh, The vote in favour of Brexit was, uh, I think, 52% or 48-something. That's right. uh, The difference of 4% being somewhat less than the normal margin of error in a Gallup poll. Yeah. Now, uh, for Brexiteers, from this point on, i include you in this, to have um, uh, acted as if this were... And this was a a vote of 72% of the electorate. So for Brexiteers to act as if this was an overwhelming will of the people, I think it's completely wrong. It wasn't. But thereafter, the representation of those 40-odd... 8%... I'll come back to their composition in a minute. ...who um, supported Remain, their representation in Parliament was eventually restricted pretty much to the Liberal Democrats part of the Labour Party, which uh, Corbyn being opposed to the EU as, a matter, as being a quite capitalist conspiracy, uh, the uh, Scottish nationalists, uh, the Welsh nationalists, and Sinn Féin, if they ever voted, which, of course, they don't. don't yeah. uh, so that was their, that was their representation, which was quite minimal in terms of the total size of Parliament. So, in effect, the Conservative Party said, well, we have this really marginally thin result in terms of Brexit and we are now going to endorse that as being our sole policy. Uh, I suppose it's unsurprising that that was not greeted with acclamation by everybody in the Conservative Party, particularly given that if you take the 30 largest cities in the U- in the UK, the overwhelming majority of them fate, voted in favour remain. Mm-hmm. Those that didn't were pretty much the Midlands, the North and one or two others. So what? So that leads to a couple of points. One is the attempt to dismiss those people as being somehow the elite is just nonsense. It's almost 50 per cent of the voting population. Secondly, it's unsurprising, is it not, that the Conservative Party should be riven on this matter. And third, it's a somewhat indirect question, uh, I noticed that your emphasis is very much on England, where the, Brexit is, where the people in favour of Brexit did have a slightly higher majority, not hugely, slightly, but ignores, for instance, Scotland, and would you, would you grant the Scots the same level of indignation about being governed by a foreign country as you do to the English? Mm.
0: And that's an argument you'll often hear in The Economist okay. magazine and the FT. Simon? Yeah.
2: Well, the Scots
1: had a referendum uh, five years ago, and they decided by 55 to 45 to stay in. So um, I'm not in... I mean, look, I'm not in favour of colonising anybody. Uh, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, the Scots can have a referendum every year if they want. But... Um, I was impressed, though, by the fact that in the 2014 referendum, they didn't even have a clue what currency they were going to use afterwards. Or <coughs> so, um, well, where the nuclear uh, weapons will go. Yeah, so they're entitled to their nationalist aspirations. And uh, I, I wrote a book, actually, called Nor Salmai Sword, which came out uh, 20 years ago, just before the Scottish Parliament opened for the first time, uh, in which I said that uh, the English should stop being so bloody arrogant, and if the Scots wanted to leave, they should be allowed to do so. Uh, So I I, I, I won't take any criticism on that, I'm afraid. Um, I certainly have never regarded what happened in 2016 as an overwhelming victory, uh, and I've never proceeded on that basis. However, as I said to the gentleman I was sitting next to at lunch, um, it's more or less the same margin by which um, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy beat Ségolène Royal in the presidential election in France in 2007, and it was regarded as an emphatic and overwhelming victory. So, you know, you have a referendum only one side can win. I can also tell you this, if it had been reversed, if my side had got 48% and the other side had got 52 we would not now be having a conversation about whether we stay in. Mm. Um, it would have been settled. Uh, and, uh, because the status quo would have been affirmed. And none of us would have said, despite the fact that the government cheated, by the way, by having a £9 million uh, publicity campaign paid for by the taxpayer, um, you know, they tried to rig the result. They brought Barack Obama over to try and terrify us into voting. Back of the queue, yeah. And they still lost. Anyway, even even if we'd even if we'd lost, that would have been the end of it. So this is why there's a great deal of unhappiness in my country that people won't accept the result of a binding referendum. And Parliament voted for that referendum. It was a referendum whose initiative it was on the initiative of a prime minister who was rabidly pro-European. You know, we just played by the rules and we won. I mean, tant pis, as they say in France, uh, to those who didn't like it very much. Also, you made your you said your about all these um, cities that support Brexit. Um, that's an entirely artificial um, way of looking at it. Over four hundred of the six hundred and fifty constituencies in the British Isles voted for Brexit. Mm. So I don't care what thirty cities or the big thirty cities did. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, again, I'm I, I I'm told all this stuff. I mean, I remember going to a dinner on the night after the referendum, and a woman sat down next to me. She didn't even introduce herself. She was so angry. She she <laughs> she turned to me and said, "Isn't it terrible?" And I said, "No." Uh,
3: <laughs> and,
1: and then and, and then she, and then she said to me. It's all these stupid people who voted uh. for him. So I said, well, i better send my PhD back to Cambridge. <laughs> um, in, in, in that view. Uh, and, you know, OK, I'm over 45, but I don't think I'm stupid. As for young people, both of my sons, who one of them is a Cambridge graduate, the other one is at the University of London, they're both Old Etonians, at well-known, disadvantaged um, comprehensive school. <laughs> they, they both voted to come out, as I know mean a lot of their friends did. There's so much misrepresentation about this yes. uh, in, in, in the media. And mm. it's all because, I'm afraid, people who had always got their own way won't take the answer that the British <clears> public gave them. And by the way, I, I wasn't calling the 48% an elite. It's the, it's the political elite in my country, in which I include not just the political class, but academia, uh, much of the media, certainly the financial media, elite, the financial elite, those are the people who went around engaging in what mm. we call Project Fear. That was the elite I got a problem with. I'm not accusing 48% of people of being elite, yeah. but they were unduly influenced by Project Fear, which was run by the elite.
0: All well, this reminds me of uh, 1972, the Richard Nixon's landslide election victory over uh, George McGovern. I think he won 60, mm. 61% of the vote. And the next day, the New Yorker's film critic, Pauline Kael, the darling of the Metropolitan Sophisticates of New York, said, How can this be? I don't know anyone who voted for Richard Nixon.
2: No. <laughs> next question. Simon, my question's uh, somewhat narrower. Perhaps you could give us a, uh, some comments about the role of the Speaker. And uh-huh. the particular personality of the speaker—is is he suffering from delusions of grandeur, or, or to use term, your terms, is he played bonkers? And why is he still there? <laughs> yes,
1: uh, one of my friends, who uh, sadly is no longer an MP, but he retired—he wasn't thrown out—famously um, described the speaker, um, I, I think, as a toxic dwarf. And um, uh, I must say, I can't improve on that. Um,
2: uh,
1: the the Speaker is supposed to be impartial. And the decision he took last week to allow a really controversial motion to be debated in the House of Commons and to force the, if, if, uh, if it was won, which it was, if it was carried, to make the government surrender control of business the following day was, given the con- controversial nature of the subject, utterly unthinkable. However, you know, these people argue. That Boris Johnson himself has dragged the British Constitution to its constitutional limits, and they're doing the same. I mean, I was uneasy about the prerogation. I know it was only an extra two or three days, but I've um, been on, attacked you know, onto the parliamentary recess over the party conference season. But I felt very strongly that the Queen should not have been put in that position because uh, Johnson knew mm. that all hell would break loose with that uh, lengthy prerogation. It is in the end the excuse that the other side used to take control of business. And it has inevitably brought the Queen closer to politics than um, she should otherwise be. Um, I mean, I, I came over here for your referendum on the Republic uh, 20 years ago and saw that at a close hand. I uh, am profoundly grateful every day I wake up to live in a country where I do not have to elect my head of state. And I think the Queen has behaved immaculately throughout her reign. Uh, the last sixty-seven years, and it's all relied on what a professor I know calls the "good chat" theory of politics—that uh, her prime ministers do not put her in an embarrassing position—and I thought this was as close as I could ever remember in my lifetime of the Queen being brought close to an embarrassing position. And it's that sort of thing that gives that makes people like the Speaker think they can do what they mm-hmm. bloody well like, um, and to exceed is remit, and I regret it. Do okay, think? Andrew
0: Lowe. I think Andrew is a. Fet- You're a board member of the Australian European Business Council, okay. which include, which includes Britain. and which includes Britain. That's right, <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> Andrew. So we get your mic right. Okay,
4: um, it, it's maybe a follow on from that uh, from that last question, which is um, you know once the dust settles on the on the passions and some of the um, you, you know the the, the personal um, things that are going on at the moment. Will Britain actually look at having a proper constitution? Because um, you, know, you think about in Australia, if you want to have a referendum, it has to be you have to s- specify exactly what it is that you're voting on. It has to go through both houses of Parliament and then it has to be passed by a majority of the country as a whole and a majority of the states. And um, you know whereas it seems to me that although you know you might say this was a terrible conspiracy of, of all these elites, the reason Brexit really hasn't happened, is because nobody knew what it actually meant. Theresa May thought it was all about immigration controls and uh, you know the European Court of Justice. Um, other people thought that naturally it would be a free trade zone. You know, you'd still have a customs union. And then obviously the you know the the, the no deal or the, uh, the 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 more sort of extreme version has now prevailed among the Brexiteers. But um, you know is is there actually some real thinking about uh, you know that this is exposed that the uh, yeah, you say that that sort of constitutional idea that everyone just does the decent thing uh, doesn't seem to actually be fit for purpose. Tommy.
1: Well, first of all, I hope on the thirty first of October you'll be forming an Anglo-Australian Trade Council, <laughs> uh, and I look forward to coming and speaking at some of its meetings when you uh, when you get it going. Um, you say no one knew what Brexit means, I and mean, certainly Theresa May gave that impression by saying Brexit means Brexit, um, <laughs> which is one of the most Fatuous <laughs> things uh, I think I've ever heard a politician say. But, um, I knew very well what Brexit meant. It meant we were leaving the European Union, end of, end of story. Uh, so uh, anybody who's not under that impression hasn't been looking at uh, the, the, the printed word very closely. That's what Brexit means. Um, do we need a Britain constitution? Look, the last time we had a serious upheaval of a constitutional nature in our country was 1688 and the Glorious Revolution. We've done pretty damn well for the last 331 years without a written constitution, Um, and I don't really see the need to have one. I think there's a great benefit. You know, we are an old country, and uh, we've had a parliament since 1265 when Simon de Montfort started one. Uh, We've had a constitutional monarchy since really 1714 when George I, not speaking a word of English, came over to be king of England. And um, we... Uh, which is a a great example of our long-standing tradition of taming the Germans. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And um, I think there's a lot to be said for constitutional arrangements that are, uh, I don't mean this in a sexist way, gentlemen's agreements, uh, or as, say, my friend Professor Peter Hennessy says, the good chap chap theory of politics. And uh, I would not want to have a written constitution uh, the only people who would benefit from that would be constitutional lawyers who would make a fortune uh, in taking apart every bit of it. And I like the way that we have conventions and I like the way that there is a general idea of what should or should not be done. I think, by the way, and maybe this helps prove my point, that the anger in Britain about the prorogation, which extended way beyond um, the opposition to Brexit, because uh, people like me felt angry about it because of our regard for the sovereign, Uh, I think that that will really put off any Prime Minister in future from behaving in such a way. And that, again, is why you don't need a written constitution, because if you try and overstep the conventions, uh, people get very upset, and therefore successive governments will think twice before doing so again. Simon, um, everyone
0: has a favourite columnist, or most people have a favourite columnist. I have had two over the last quarter of a century. My first was Charles Krauthammer, the distinguished Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist. Uh, from the Washington Post, who sadly died more than a year ago. And my other favourite columnist is you, old boy. Uh, and we at CIS are thrilled and honoured to have had you here this week. We're up in Brisbane tomorrow night and then on Thursday on, um, in Canberra. Uh, we'll also be talking about Western civilisation. We haven't had much of a chance to talk about this uh, today, uh, but there is a great debate taking place about whether the universities should be in collaboration with the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilisation. You have very firm views on this subject. And we look forward to hearing them tomorrow night in Brisbane. But ladies and gentlemen, could you all please join me in thanking
2: Simon Hepper? Thank you.